Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. All right. When I say the word meltdown, what comes to your mind? All right. And I don't want you to be pointing at anybody or anything like that. Now, now maybe you thought of some of your kids, right? Now, kids, what happens here when they have like a meltdown is, well, you know, they get, they get hungry, thirsty, tired, something doesn't go their way. Uh, they're prone to experience this angst of anxiety, okay? And there's all sorts of different things that can happen. They start pouting, they can start crying, kicking things. There's weeping, gnashing of teeth. I mean, it all just kind of goes ballistic. They just start falling apart because, and when they do that, uh, at least in our home, we call that a meltdown, okay? Now, it's really good to know that you, we grew out of these things, you know? Uh, I mean, children, they have a meltdown here. Uh, for adults, um, you know, when we get hungry and tired, things don't go our way, we, we might e- actually even have a literal meltdown. In fact, there's a picture of a guy right there. Uh, he was just kind of enduring the Texas heat about as long as he could, and he just had, a, he had this meltdown. He just kind of, and, and you know what that's like, right? Or no, I mean, look at you guys. You're all so, so together this morning and so composed. And it would be hard to imagine that anyone in this room would have ever had a, a meltdown, right? Now, does anybody want to maybe just share a personal story of, of a meltdown that you've had? Maybe on the way to church. Uh, anybody? Okay, you do. Oh, you do? Or, or maybe, maybe you want to speak of one that you witnessed, like your spouse or when he, you, anybody want to do that? Okay, don't put your hand, oh man, this is going to be a hard weekend for you. Why did you, okay. You don't, we don't really want to talk about meltdowns, and yet we're so familiar with them. Uh, we have uh, meltdowns in some ways that we're, we're embarrassed to even uh, to mention. In fact, we try to block them out. And every single one of us is familiar with a physical or emotional or very likely a spiritual meltdown. In fact, you need to know this. You're sitting next to people who have meltdowns. Does that make you feel better? In fact, even yours truly, I've had my moments. We all have. I'll tell you, we don't have to imagine what meltdowns look like. We've personally experienced them. In fact, some of our hardest, most difficult moments in our life, what we've tucked away deep in a closet we don't ever want anyone to go into, have come about with some meltdowns in our life. And it, and it wasn't pretty. And so this morning, for just a few minutes, I'd actually, I want to see if we can actually just unpack, spell out this descent into disaster. What does it look like when you have a spiritual meltdown? Now, we don't have to imagine, we don't even have to guess. God actually makes it very clear in his word what the steps are in a spiritual meltdown. In fact, they're found in all four gospel accounts with someone that we can actually relate very well to, a man by the name of Peter. And so let me just tell you what these five steps are toward a spiritual meltdown. These may look all too familiar, and I'm going to kind of go back with some of the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew and just kind of cover some points that are going to seem familiar because we've already covered them in detail. Let me tell you the very first one. The first uh, step is focusing on self. You remember our man Peter. 
Jesus, after, remember, on the, they're celebrating the Passover meal. He says, my body's going to be broken. My blood's going to be shed for the ratifying and the establishment of the new covenant. And then he makes these statements here in verse 31 of chapter 26. He says, then Jesus said to them, you will all, that's you, Peter, all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I'm going to strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. He gives this prophecy from Zechariah 13:7. He says, this is going to come a fulfillment. I, the shepherd, I'm going to be struck down. You, the sheep, you're going to be scattered. And he says, verse 32, but after I have been raised, he tells them, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But you know, when you're taking this descent into spiritual disaster, you're starting this meltdown, guess what? You're focused on you. And certainly that was the case for Peter. Peter should have said, whoa, Lord, God, help me. Be merciful to me. But Peter said, verse 33, Jesus, you got it all wrong here. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He, when you start hearing I a lot, well, you notice that you're starting to focus on self. Now, Jesus said to him, hey, wait, calm down here, Peter. Truly, I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But you know, when you're focused on self, what Jesus has to say isn't as important as what you think. You kind of become somewhat invincible in your own mind. Peter said, whoa, no, Jesus I know who I am. I am strong and I am committed. These other guys in the group, the disciples, they may not have what it takes, but I've got it. I am courageous and strong and I will never let you down. And so he says, you know, I don't know what you're saying about this rooster and me denying you three times. It'll never happen because he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the other disciples are like, well, man, look at Peter. He's got the bravado, man. And they all say what? All the disciples say the same thing. You know, when you're focusing on self, what Jesus has to say isn't as important as what you think. This had happened before. Jesus, remember, had said he's going to build his church, and then he says that I'm going to be actually destroyed. They're going to, they're going to whip and beat me, mock me, and crucify me. And Peter said, oh, no, 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 Jesus. I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus had to correct him. The thoughts that you have are from Satan, he says, because I must go to the cross. There is no redemption for my people. There's no salvation. There's no relationship with the one true God if I don't satisfy this payment for sin. Let me tell you, this descent into spiritual meltdown, it begins when you're focusing on self. Just like Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Let me give you the second step. Not only uh, focusing on self, but the second step to a spiritual meltdown. You might want to take notes in case you want to have one or you want to avoid one. And that is failing to pray. Remember, they had made their way into the garden. This is the night in which Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. They make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 36. And he, they come there. They, he sits these guys down. He says, I'm going to go over there and pray. I want you to do the same thing. Verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. They could see the angst and the, the hurt in his life and how he's expressing this in the grievous nature of what he's about to undergo. And he said to them, verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. That has the idea that you were alert in the attitude of prayer, that you are talking to God. 
You are, you are asking God for his will to be done. You're asking God for strength for whatever you're about to face. And Jesus pulls these guys, especially Peter, and he says, I want you to be praying. Because Jesus can already see the sign of spiritual descent in Peter. He's already going off, running off of the mouth about how strong he is because he's focusing on himself. Jesus goes and he models what he wants them to do. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, and yet not as I will, but as you will. And you know you're on your way to a spiritual meltdown when verse 40 becomes a reality in your life. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. What Peter needed for fortitude in his soul, strength, was prayer. Jesus told him, said, this is what I want you to do. Watch me and watch and pray. And Peter said, you know, I don't think so. Jesus seems to be all upset, but I think I've got a little bit more together than Jesus and what he has to say. I think I'll take a nap. And this happened not once, not twice, three times. Somewhere between the period of 12 and 3, he could have thought like, well, you know, give the guy a break. He's probably tired. It's been a long day. I mean, they just had the Passover. It's been a busy week, right, following Jesus around. Jesus said pray. He tells us to pray. When we simply don't think we need to pray, we can do it on our own, uh, you're well on your way to a spiritual meltdown. Let me give you the, the third step. And that is when you start functioning in the flesh. You actually just start taking matters into your own hands. You think that you're going to work this out on your strength, your abilities, your intelligence, your eloquence. You don't need to pray. You don't need to listen to Jesus. You just do what you want to do, even if you think you're doing the right thing. And so remember, Jesus says, get up, let's go. Here's my man that's betraying me. He has that encounter. Judas comes up, kisses him. And when you're on your way to a spiritual meltdown, you know what you do? start functioning the flesh you start acting like peter look at verse 51 and behold one of those who were with jesus reached and he drew out his sword struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear and we know from john's account that this was the high priest slave peter is named as the man who does it he pulls out his sword he probably goes for a lethal blow. He's going for the carotid artery. His aim's a little bit off. He gets an ear. And he just goes and hacks out. I mean, talk about bold, kind of courageous, right? I mean, this isn't the Salvation Army that came out to arrest Jesus. This is part of the Roman army. And they got their spears, they got their swords, and they had their clubs. But you see, when you're not listening to Jesus, and you really aren't interested in praying when he's telling you to pray, you start functioning in the flesh. You do what you think you need to do. In fact, I think we're all probably pretty familiar with this. You know you're well on your way to a spiritual meltdown when you're simply following the impulses, the appetites, and the desires of your body apart from them being yielded to Christ. Peter's was manifested in taking out his aggression, his anger, and his fear, cutting off a, a slave's ear, which Jesus healed. Let me tell you, it may look the same for us, but it also could be anything from food, drinks, sex, esteem, recognition, sleep. Apart from us yielding and submitting our lives to Christ 
and what he wants, we start acting in the flesh. And frankly, there's a lot of Christians that this is kind of their M.O., their modus operandi. They actually just do whatever their body feels like doing. They're not yielded and submitted to Christ. And it explains why they've got such lack of peace, angst, problems, kind of this disconnect with God, even though they they believe in Christ, they don't experience his peace or joy. Because when you're functioning in the flesh, you're taking another step to spiritual disaster. Well, let me give you the fourth step. Are you tracking with these? Start focusing on yourself. Fail to pray. Start functioning in the flesh. The fourth one is you start following Jesus at a distance. Jesus is arrested, remember? They take him to Annas, who had been the former high priest, but he's still running the whole operation through his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas then is now going to have this mock trial. It's the second of, of three mock trials the Jews are going to run. The Gentiles will run three more. And they're there, and look at verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. How about that? Here we are, maybe like two in the morning, and all the ruling body of the Jews are all gathered together, and they got one reason why they're staying up so late. And it wasn't because they're all so excited about the Passover. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They just got to find something wrong with this man. They They got to stick some charges to him. And so they're gathered together in the middle of the night when everybody's sleeping, at least all the crowds and the masses, because they don't want to alarm them. But I want you to see verse 58. But Peter, hey, here, there's our man right there. Peter was following him at a distance. You see that? He was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. You know you're well on your way to a spiritual meltdown when you start developing a pattern in your life where you follow Jesus at a distance. It is the incognito Christian. You don't, you don't want anybody to know that you're actually a follower of him, so this is what you do. You're, you're, you're one of his, and yet you're trying to act like you're not. You're trying to act like the rest of the world. You're trying to fit in. And that's exactly what Peter does with Jesus. He's trying to follow him at a distance. And there's probably no more dangerous situation for a Christian than when you just try to blend in with the world. You know, you see this in the workplace. How many of you uh, have an opportunity to, to maybe represent Christ? Maybe actually attribute things that have gone well the glory of God or his goodness or his grace in your life. And I'm not going to do that. I don't want to mention anything about that, because if I do, I'll come off as some sort of religious fanatic or worse yet. They won't think that it's how smart I am or how clever my 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 operation or my marketing scheme is. And and so what happens is we just go incognito and you always find yourself in danger when you're following Jesus at a distance. I, I just want to stop right now. I just want to ask you a question. Does anybody know that you are a Christian? Does anybody know? I'm not talking right here at fellowship. You're probably making some radical assumptions here, right? How about at work? Does anybody know? 
I'm not saying you have to stand on your desk and say, I am a Christian and I just want everybody to know that, right? No. But can they tell by your attitude and your behavior and your ethics and your morals and how you treat people and how you treat people that aren't treating you very nice? Does anybody know at work or at school? Or are you the incognito Christian? Are you just kind of like the chameleon? You're just matching and blending in because you don't want to make waves. Does anybody know that you follow Christ? Uh, does anybody in your family know? Uh, I think my kids kind of know, maybe. Have you told them? Have you showed them? How about your extended family? Does anybody know that you follow Christ? Do your neighbors know? Now, they should probably figure it out because Sunday morning, I usually drive to church. They, they think, I think they probably know that I'm not going out for breakfast or something. Yeah, they, they should know. Or have you ever entered in some sort of conversation with them, which assumes that you've actually met your neighbors, where you might be able to engage them? How about the people that have hurt you the most? Do they know that you are a Christian? I just want to ask you, will anybody be shocked or have the potential to go into cardiac arrest at your funeral when it was announced that you... We're a follower of Jesus. I mean, you know, is there going to be someone that's going, what? Oh, that pastor, he's just saying that to be nice to the family. There is no way that Bubba or Sally, Emma, Jane, Sue is a Christian. There's just no way. I mean, uh, I've watched my work with them for 15 years. I no. They're just saying that to make the family feel good. But I know because I lived with them. You see, you don't have to have a little fish on the back of your car. But you do have to have Christ living in your life, being expressed in your words, your attitudes, how you handle yourself, your behavior, your conduct that speaks of Jesus. Because of your relationship with Christ, you live differently. Let me tell you, you are well on your way to a spiritual meltdown when you're developing patterns of just following Jesus at a distance. Well, that leads us to the final step. You want to see what spiritual meltdown looks like? You don't have to guess. All four Gospels record this. That is finding companionship among rejectors. Look at verse 69. Right prior to this, Jesus is now being abused, beaten, slapped, mocked, because he has confessed that indeed he's the Christ. And he says, one day you're going to see me. I am the judge. You're going to see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of the power, and he's coming on the clouds of heaven. Those scriptures about the Messiah, they speak of me because I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. Well, they told Jesus what they thought of that. And Peter, our man, he's watching all this. In verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, "Uh, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. Here's the, here's the scene. They're in the courtyard. Likely that Annas and Caiaphas shared this large courtyard. It's, it's got to be pretty big. You've got the Sanhedrin. You've got 70 ruling elders. You've got soldiers. You've got anybody else that was around watching this thing taking place. John actually knows the, the high priest. That's how he gets entrance in there. Peter's in there. We don't actually know whatever happens to John. Perhaps he hightails it as soon as he sees the heat being turned up on Peter. But Peter's there, and he's watching. He's following at a distance, but he's kind of watching to see what's all going on here. And then he was not expecting this. But here comes this little servant girl. and says, you, you, uh, you know Jesus. You were with him. Maybe she had seen him with, during the week. Maybe she would accompanied this whole massive crowd into the garden when they arrested him. 
But Peter, he he denied it, verse 70, before them all saying, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Jesus, what are, you, what are you talking about? I don't I don't know him. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And notice what the text says. He denied it before them all. She obviously didn't come up and whisper in your ear, I think you're with Jesus. No, she makes this big, bold statement. You are with Jesus. And so Peter, he's like, because he sees what they're doing to Jesus. You know, oh, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And he makes this real loud, grandiose statement. It's at this point that Mark says that there was this first rooster crow. Likely Peter didn't hear it because Jesus apparently said that, you know, there's going to be two crows of a rooster. And after that, you'll have known that you've denied me three times. Well, man, there's see. What's taking place, Luke records that they are actually by this fire. In Luke 22, verse 55, Peter is standing with these soldiers by a fire. Perhaps the blaze goes up, Peter's face is illumined. He has to deny it in front of this little girl and all these others. And so what do you do when the, when the flame is getting a little hot? It's getting a little warmed up in the kitchen. What do you have to do? You have to get away, right? And so he does. So he moves out, verse 71, when he had gone out to the gateway. So now he kind of moves to the front entrance. It would be like this porch entrance into this courtyard. And, oh, no. Another servant girl, this is a different one, a little servant girl. She is the lowest on the strata of status. She saw him and said to those who were there, oh, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. This, this one over here. And so she makes the statement. There's others. Obviously, this is a pretty packed situation. Peter's probably moved over to the gate because he's thinking, if I got to run, I want to be by the door. I, I'm getting away. I'm getting away certainly from that fire. I'm getting away from these Roman soldiers. I think I'm going to just kind of quietly slip over here and get next to the gate because if I have to get out of here, I can slip away. He was not expecting another little servant girl to come up and say, this one is with Jesus of Nazareth. And notice what she says. Well, she says, listen, this man was with him. And Peter says, verse 72, and again, he denied it. But this time he's got to amp it up. He denied it with an oath. He now actually invokes God's name into this. The idea when you when you're going to swear by an oath is like, may God strike me dead if I'm not telling you the truth right here. And so here's Peter. He says, I do not know the man. And to refer to Jesus as the man, this was kind of like a form of derision. Like, I don't even know the man. Like that. And so here's Peter. Remember, I said, Lord, even if I'm going to, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now he's saying, with an oath, may God strike me dead because I don't even know this, this man. Refuse of a man. Bleeding and getting beat. And he probably deserves it kind of attitude. Well, then, verse 73. A little later, the bystanders came up and, and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. All right? Now, if you were from Galilee, which Peter and all the disciples, with the exception of Judas, are from Galilee, they're not Judeans, the guys from the south. And Judas, by the way, was from Judah, Judea. Well, they had like a little uh, mannerisms in how they actually pronounced their vowels, and they were not so good with some of their consonants, and they kind of dropped them off. And so there was kind of the Galilean accent. And they 
the Judeans would actually kind of like use that as kind of like a little slur, like you're a Galilean. You talk like one, like you're some sort of backwoods hick. You're from Galilee afterwards. And Peter spoke just like all the other Galileans, likely how Jesus spoke. And they say, how, how you speak gives you away. You're a Galilean, and by the way, we're certain that you must be with Jesus. Peter's hearing this. He's seeing this. This is the third time. I mean, he's becoming dismantled. Certainly at, certain, at one point in his mind, he remembered what Jesus had to say. And notice how he responds. Verse 74, then he began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. He says, I don't know the man. He curses. He's invoking God. God, strike me dead. If I'm not telling the truth and swearing, it is very possible. He just starts letting out these vulgarities. You see, Jesus is a righteous, holy man, right? And so in order to distinguish that you're not with him, what do you got to do? You have to act totally opposite. You start swearing. You bring out the, the big, bad words that you've got tucked away in your vocabulary and you sp- display them out there. Because you, after all, you have to differentiate yourself from this one Jesus whom they say, you're with him, right? And what we have here, spiritual meltdown. But look at verse 75. But Peter remembered the word which the Lord had said before a rooster crows. You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It's at this very time, Luke says this in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, that it is at this time that Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. Their eyes met. Jesus, having gone through their abuse, he's got blood coming down his face. He's been spit on. He's been beat. Sitting there, Peter now at this distance, his eyes lock onto Jesus. And he sees the look of love. Not of disgust, but certainly Jesus thinking, Peter, my dear friend, I spent three years with you. I told you this was coming. I told you to pray. I've warned you. Here you are. You're denying me. Peter, he just comes completely unraveled. You see, when you are on your descent to a disaster spiritually, eventually you hit meltdown. And look at how Peter responds. He went out and he wept bitterly. Now, not one of us can look with judgment upon Peter, can we? Because I have a feeling we've all had our moments, haven't we? Have we not realized that brokenness, disaster exists in each one of us? You see, I want you to know something. The reason that this is recorded is because God wants us to know that God uses broken things, broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength to people. God is in the process of using broken people. And the marvelous thing about this passage and about the gospel accounts and the book of Acts is that your failure is not the final word. Jesus is. And I'd like to tell you just how God restores and uses broken people. This is the worst night of his life. And I would imagine that you've had 
some worst nights in your life. Perhaps you played a major role in the breakdown of a marriage. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe you had four. Perhaps you betrayed someone. Maybe you made some sort of devastating financial blunder. Maybe you denied the faith. Maybe you went someplace online or off the road that you should have never been. Is it over for you? I'd imagine that Peter probably thought it was over for him. (laughs) The whole idea of having a ministry for Jesus, well, that's down the drain, right? Just denied him three times. It's, It's done. I mean, what else could I do? Totally disown the man with curses even. Let me just tell you how God uses and restores broken people. First of all, you have to be broken over your sin. Did you see Peter? He went out and wept bitterly. There's two types of sorrow. There's, there's a kind of a sorrow like a regret, like, ah, oh, man, I don't like this. This is making my life hard. I lost friends and influence, and, oh, and I have to pay all this money now. That's not the sorrow that Peter had. Peter had the kind where you had just broken down to the core. God, I hate this sin. I hate what I've done. I don't like this. And I want restoration badly. I want you, because you were broken down at a soul level. Well, that's where it begins. First of all, it begins with being broken over your sin. You know, though this was Peter's lowest point, I just want you to know this. Sometimes it takes a significant failure to get your attention. To bring you to a place of utter brokenness before God. And when you are there, then God can accomplish his work because you're now teachable, hungry, and humble. But it starts with being broken over your sin. Let me tell you another thing. It's believing that God still loves you and forgives you. It is a heart that turns back to the Savior. You see, the beauty of this is that God isn't done with Peter. God is going to restore him, renew him, He's going to experience life like he has never experienced it before, but he's got to go through the brokenness of his defeat. And then let me tell you the third step. That is beginning to hope again. In just three days after Jesus is crucified, he's buried. On the third day, that first Sunday, that Easter Sunday, Jesus is risen from the dead and he tells these women, he says, go tell my disciples And Mark says, and Peter, I am on my way to meet you in Galilee. And Peter, you know what happened in that old fisherman's life? When he heard the words, and Peter, hope was restored. And that is how we move out of disdain and and, and despair and depression and discouragement because we begin to hope again in the reality of the gospel that God loves us with a love that he'll even die for us through his son and that he will rise again and give us life. And so he tells him, I'm going ahead, tell Peter. And remember that scene in John chapter 21, Peter and the guys are out fishing, they get skunked and they come and Jesus has already prepared breakfast for fish because they couldn't catch any. And remember at that fire, the last time Peter was at a fire, it didn't go so well. This time he's at a fire, Jesus has made it, he's serving breakfast and he said, Peter, do you love me? Remember that? He asked him three times, and three times Peter affirmed his love for Jesus. You find this in John chapter 21. And then Jesus said, you know what I want you to do? I want you to tend my lambs. I want you to shepherd my sheep. I want you to tend my sheep. He not only restores Peter, 
He gives him a vision like, I'm not done with you yet. Through my power and the power of the Holy Spirit, which I promised is coming upon you, I'm going to use you to accomplish my ministry work in the lives of my people. And that's exactly what happened. Fifty days later, the Feast of Pentecost, we find a very different man filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, believing in Jesus, dealing and going through his, his actual uh, denial of him. Fifty days later on Pentecost, he preaches perhaps one of the boldest sermons ever preached. And he declares Jesus Christ to the very same crowd that crucified him. How does he do that? Because this man has experienced the restoration that comes from Christ. Now, church lore has it that every time Peter heard a rooster crow, he, uh, he, he broke down. Jesus' final words to Peter is, follow me. According to church tradition, Peter had to watch his wife being crucified for her faith in Christ. And he simply said this to her, remember the Lord. And then when it was his turn, he insisted that he be crucified upside down because he's not worthy to die in the same way as his Lord. Friends, God never sees you and me in our sin. He sees us in our son. And failure is not unforgivable. God uses broken people and our failure is not the final word. Jesus is. Jesus is the final word. See, God uses broken people who know, who know the love of the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for an amazing passage that describes spiritual descent into meltdown. And yet, you restore us, you renew us. And I pray for my friends, family members, and you. Lord, renew us with the truth that you love us with an unconditional steadfast love that you're not done with us because we're united with Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name.